Chapter 5 In this way, one month, then a second, passed by. Just before the new year, his brother-in-law arrived in the town on a visit to them. Ivan Ilyich was at the court when he arrived. Kraskovia Fedorovna had gone out shopping. Coming home and going into his study, he found there his brother-in-law, a healthy, ruddy man, engaged in unpacking his trunk. He raised his hand, hearing Ivan Ilyich's step, and for a second stared at him without a word. That stare told Ivan Ilyich everything. His brother-in-law opened his mouth to utter an oh of surprise, but checked himself. This, that confirmed it all. What? Have I changed? Yes, there is a change. And all Ivan Ilyich's efforts to draw him into talking of his appearance, his brother-in-law met with obstinate silence. Praskovia Fedorovna came in. The brother-in-law went to see her. Ivan Ilyich locked his door and began gazing at himself in the looking-glass, first full face, then in profile. He took up his photograph, taken with his wife, and compared the portrait with what he saw in the looking-glass. The change was immense. When he bared his arm to the elbow, looked at it, pulled the sleeve down again, sat down on an ottoman, and felt blacker than night. I mustn't, I mustn't, he said to himself, jumped up, went to the table, opened some official paper, tried to read it, but could not. He opened the door, went into the drawing room. The door into the drawing room was closed. He went up to it on tiptoe and listened. No, you're exaggerating, Praskovia Fedorovna was saying. Exaggerating? You can't see it. Why, he's a dead man. Look at his eyes. There's no light in them. But what's wrong with him? No one can tell. Nikolaev, that was another doctor, said something, but I don't know. Leshtishki, <laughs> I don't, it's a hard one. This was the celebrated doctor, said the opposite. Ivan Ilyich walked away, went to his own room, lay down, and fell to musing. A kidney, a loose kidney. He remembered all the doctors had told him, how it had been detached and how it was loose, and by an effort of imagination he tried to catch that kidney and to stop it, to strengthen it. So little was needed, he fancied. No, I'll go again to Pyotr Ivanovich. This was the friend who had a friend, a doctor. He rang, ordered the horse to be put in, and got ready to go out. Where <coughs> Where are you off to, Jean? asked his wife with a peculiarly melancholy and exceptionally kind expression. This exceptionally kind expression exasperated him. He looked darkly at her. I want to see Pyotr Ivanovich. He went to the friend who had a friend, a doctor, and with him the doctors. He found him in and, a long and had a long conversation with him. Reviewing the anatomical and physiological details of what, according to the doctor's view, was taking place within him, he understood it all. It was just one thing, one, uh, a little thing wrong with the appendix. It might come all right. Only strengthen one sluggish organ and decrease the undue activity of another, and absorption would take place, and all would be set right. He was a little late for dinner. 
He ate his dinner, talked cheerfully, but it was a long while before he could go to his own room to work. At last he went to his study and at once sat down to work. He read his legal, legal documents and did his work, but the consciousness never left him of having a matter of importance very near to his heart, which he had put off, but would look into later. When he had finished his work, he remembered that the matter near his heart was thinking about the appendix. But he did not give himself up to it. He went into the drawing room to tea. There were visitors, and there was talking, playing on the piano, and singing. There was the young examining magistrate, the desirable match for the daughter. Ivan Ilyich spent the evening, as Praskovia Fedorovna observed, in better spirits than any of them. But he never forgot for an instant that he had the important matter of the appendix put off for consideration later. At eleven o'clock he said good night and went to his own room. He had slept alone since his illness in a little room adjoining his study. He went in, undressed, and took up a novel of Zola, but did not read it. He fell to thinking. And in his imagination the desired recovery of the appendix had taken place. There had been absorption, rejection, re-establishment of the regular action. Well, it's all sim simply that, he said to himself. One only wants to assist nature. He remembered the medicine, got up, took it, lay down on his back, watching for the medicine to act beneficially and overcome the pain. It's only to take it regularly and avoid injurious, um, where am I, influences. Why, already I feel rather better, much better. He began to feel his side. It was not painful to the touch. Why, I don't feel it. Really, much better already. He put out the candle and lay on his side. The, old, the appendix is getting better, absorption. Suddenly he felt the familiar, old, dull, gnawing ache, persistent, quiet, in earnest. In his mouth the same familiar, loathsome taste. His heart sank, his brain felt dim, misty. My God, my God, he said again, he said, again, again, and it will never cease. And suddenly the whole thing rose before him in quite a different aspect. Appendix! Kidney, he said to himself. It's not a question of the appendix, not a question of the kitty, kidney, but of life and death. Yes, life has been and now is going, going away, and I cannot stop it. Yes. Why deceive myself? Isn't it obvious to everyone except me that I'm dying? And it's only a question of weeks, of days, at once perhaps. There was light, and now there is darkness. I was here, and now I am going. Where? A cold chill ran over him. His breath stopped. He heard nothing but the throbbing of his heart. I shall be no more. Then what will there be? There'll be nothing. Where then shall I be when I'm no more? Can this be dying? No, I don't want to. He jumped up, tried to light the candle, and fumbling with trembling hands, he dropped the candle and the candlestick on the floor and fell back again on the pillow. Why trouble? It doesn't matter, he said to himself, staring with open eyes into the darkness. Death, yes, death. And they, all of them, don't understand, and don't want to understand, and feel no pity. They are playing. 
He caught through the closed doors the far, uh, far away cadence of a voice and the accompaniment. They don't care, but they will die too, fools. Me sooner and them later, but it will be the same for them. And they are merry, the beasts. Anger stifled him, and he was agonizingly, insufferably miserable. It cannot be that all men always have been doomed to this awful horror. He raised himself. There is something wrong in it. I must be calm. I must think it all over from the beginning. And then he began to consider. Yes, the beginning of my illness. I knocked my side, and I was just the same, that day and the days after. It ached a little, then more, then doctors, then depression, misery, and again doctors, and I've gone on getting closer and closer to the abyss, strength growing less, nearer and nearer, and here I am, wasting away, no light in my eyes. I think of how to cure the appendix, but this is death. Can it be death? Again a horror came over him. Gasping for breath, he bent over, began feeling for the matches, and knocked his elbow, elbow against the bedside table. It, would, it was in his way and hurt him. He felt furious with it, and his anger knocked against it more violently and upset it. And in despair, breathless, he fell back on his spine, waiting for death to come that instant. The visitors were leaving at this time. Praskovia Fedorovna was seeing them out. She heard something fall and came in. What is it? Nothing. I dropped something by accident. She went out, brought a candle. He was lying, breathing hard and fast, like a man who had run a mile, and staring with fixed eyes at her. What is it, Jean? No nothing, I say. I dropped something. Why speak? She won't understand, he thought. She certainly did not understand. She picked up the candle, lighted it for him, and went out hastily. She had to say goodbye to a departing guest. When she came back, he was lying in the same position on his back, looking upwards. How are you? Worse? Yes. She shook her head, sat down. Do you know what, Jean? I wonder if there, if we hadn't better send for Lushtitsky to see you here. This meant calling in the celebrated doctor, regardless of expense. He smiled mag uh, malignantly and said no. She sat a moment longer, went up to him, and kissed him on the forehead. He hated her with all the force of his soul when she was kissing him, and had to make an effort not to push her away. Good night. Please God, you'll sleep. Yes. Chapter 6 Ivan Ilyich saw that he was dying and was in continual despair. At the bottom of his heart, Ivan Ilyich knew that he was dying, but so far from growing used to this idea, he simply did not grasp it. He was utterly unable to grasp it. The example of the syllogism that he had learned in Kisevitur's logic, Caius is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caius is mortal, had seemed to him all his life correct only as regards Caius, but not at all as regards himself. In that case, it was a question of Caius, a man, an abstract man, and it was perfectly true, but he was not Caius, and was not an abstract man. 
He had always been a creature quite, quite different from all others. He had been little Vanya with the mama and papa, Mitya and Volodya with playthings and a coachman and a nurse, afterwards with Ken Katinka, with all the joys and griefs and ecstasies of childhood, boyhood, and youth. What did Caius know of the smell of the leathern ball Vanya had been so fond of? Had Caius kissed his mother's hand like that? Caius had not uh, heard the silk rustle of his mother's skirts. He had not made a riot at school over the, pud uh, over the pudding. Had Caius been in love like that? Could Caius preside over the sittings of the court? And Caius certainly was mortal, and it was right for him to die. But for me, little Vanya, Ivan Ilyich, with all my feelings and ideas, for me it's a different matter, and it cannot be that I ought to die. That would be too awful. That was his feeling. If I had to die like Caius, I should have known it was so. Some inner voice would have told me so. But there was nothing of the sort in me. And I and all my friends, we felt that it was not at all the same as with Caius. And now here it is, he said to himself. It can't be. It can't be. But it is. How is it? How is one to understand it? And he could not conceive it, and tried to drive away this idea as false, incorrect, and morbid, and to supplant it by other, correct, healthy ideas. But this idea, not as an idea merely, but as it were an actual fact, came back again and stood confronting him. And to replace this thought he called up other thoughts, one after another, in the hope of finding support in them. He tried to get back into former trains of thought, which in old days had screened off the de thought of death. But, strange to say, all that had in old days covered up, obliterated the sense of death, could not now produce the same effect. Latterly, Ivan Ilyich spent the greater part of his time in these efforts to restore his old trains of thought, which had uh, shut off death. At one time he would say to himself, I will put myself into my official work, why I used to believe in it. And then he would go to the law courts, banishing every doubt. He would enter into conversation with his colleagues, and would sit carelessly, as his old habit was, scanning the crowd below dreamily, and with both his wasted hands he would lean on the arms of the oak armchair just as he always did, and bending over to a colleague pass the papers to him and whisper to him, then suddenly dropping his eyes and sitting up straight, he would pronounce the familiar words that opened the proceedings. But suddenly in the middle, the pain in his side, utterly regardless of the stage he had reached in, this con in his conduct of the case, began its work. It riveted Ivan Ilyich's attention. He drove away the thought of it, but it still did its work. And then it came and confronted him and looked at him, and he felt turned to stone, and the light died away in his eyes. And he began to ask himself again, Can it be that it is the only truth? And his colleagues and his subordinates saw with surprise and distress that he, the brilliant, subtle judge, was losing the thread of his speech, was making blunders. He shook himself, tried to regain his self-control, and got somehow to the end of the sitting, and went home with the painful sense that his judicial labors could not as of old hide from him what he wanted to hide. But he, 
that he could not by means of his official work escape from it. And the worst of it was that it drew him to itself not for him to do anything in particular, but simply for him to look at it straight in the face, to look at it and, doing nothing, suffer unspeakably. And to save himself from this, Ivan Ilyich sought amusements, other screens, and these screens he found, and for a little while they uh, did seem to save him. But soon again, they were not so much broken down as uh, let the light through, and as though it pierced through everything, and there was nothing that, it, uh, that could shut it off. Sometimes during those days he would go into the drawing room he had furnished, that drawing room where he had fallen, for which, how bitterly ludicrous it was for him to think of it, for the decoration of which he had sacrificed his life, for he knew that it was that bruise that had started his illness. He went in and saw that the polished table had been scratched by something. He looked for the cause and found it in the bronze clasps of the album, which had been twisted on one side. He took up the album, a costly one, which he had arranged himself with loving care, and was vexed at the carelessness of his daughter and her friends. Here a page was torn, here the photographs had been shifted out of their places. He carefully put it to rights again and bent the clasp back. Then the idea occurred to him to move um, all this established... This is a word in italic, so I guess it's probably French. It, oh wait, establishment of the album to another corner where the flowers stood. He called the footman, or his daughter or his wife came to help him. They did not agree with him, contradicted him. He argued, got angry, but all that was all that was very well, since he did not think of it. It was not in sight. But then his wife would say, as he moved something himself, Do let the servants do it, you'll hurt yourself again. And all at once, it peeped through the screen. He caught a glimpse of it. He caught a glimpse of it, but still he hoped it would hide itself. Involuntarily, though, he kept watch on his side. There it is, just the same still, aching still, and now he cannot forget it. And it is staring openly at him from behind the flowers. What's the use of it all? And it's the fact that here, at that curtain, as if it had been storming a fort, I lost my life. Is it possible? How awful and how silly. It cannot be. It, it cannot be... And it is. He went into his own room, lay down, and was again alone with it. Face to face with it, and nothing to be done with it. Nothing but to look at it and shiver. Chapter 7 How it came to pass during the third month of Ivan Ilyich's illness, it would be impossible to say, for it happened little by little, imperceptibly, but it had come to pass that his wife and his daughter and his son and their servants and their acquaintances and the doctors and, most of all, he himself, all were aware that all interest in him from other people consisted now in the question how soon he would leave his place empty, free the living from the constraint of his presence, and be set free himself from his sufferings. He slept less and less. They gave him opium and began to inject morphine. 
But this did not relieve him. The dull pain he experienced in the half-sleep condition at first only relieved him as a change, but then it became as bad, or even more agonizing than the open pain. He had special things to eat prepared for him according to the doctor's prescriptions, but these dishes became more and more distasteful, more and more revolting to him. Special arrangements, too, had to be made for his other physical needs, and this was a continual misery to him. Misery from the uncleanliness, the unseemliness, and the stench, from the feeling of another person having to assist in it. But just from this most unpleasant side of his illness, there came comfort to Ivan Ilyich. There always came into his room on these occasions to clear up for him the peasant who waited at table, Garrison. Garrison was a clean, fresh, young peasant who had grown stout and hardy on the good fare in town. Always cheerful and bright. And that's just, that's the sentence, always cheerful and bright. At first the sight of this lad, always cleanly dressed in the Russian style, engaged in this revolting task, embarrassed Ivan Ilyich. One day, getting up from the night stool, too weak to replace his clothes, he dropped on to a soft, low chair and looked with horror at his bare, powerless limbs, with the muscles so sharply standing out on them. Then there came in with light, strong steps Garrison, in his thick boots, diffusing a pleasant smell of tar from his boots, and bringing in the freshness of the winter air. Wearing a clean hempen apron and a clean cotton shirt, with his sleeves tucked up, tucked up on his strong, bare young arms, without looking at Ivan Ilyich, <coughs> excuse me, Ivan Ilyich, uh, obviously trying to check the radiant happiness in his face so as not to hurt the sick man, he went up to the night stool. Garrison said Ivan Ilyich faintly. Garrison started clearly afraid that he had done something amiss, and with a rapid movement turned towards the sick man his fresh, good-natured, simple young face, just beginning to be downy with the first growth of beard. Yes, your honor. I'm afraid this is very disagreeable for you. You must excuse me. I can't help it. Why, upon my word, sir, and Garrison's eyes beamed, and he showed his white young teeth in a smile. What's a little trouble? It's a case of illness with you, sir. And with his deft, strong arms, he performed his habitual task and went out, stepping lightly. And five minutes later, treading just as lightly, he came back. Ivan Ilyich was still sitting in the same way in the armchair. Garrison, he said, when the latter had replaced the night stool all sweet and clean, please help me. Come here. Garrison went up to him. Lift me up. It's difficult for me alone, and I've sent Dmitri away. Garrison went up to him. As lightly as he stepped, he put his strong arms round him, deftly and gently lifting and supporting him. With the other hand pulled up his trousers and would have set him down again, but Ivan Ilyich asked him to carry him to the sofa. Garrison, without effort, carefully not squeezing him, led him, almost carrying him, to the sofa, and settled him there. Thank you. How neatly and well you do everything. Garrison smiled again and would have gone away, 
but Ivan Ilyich felt his presence such a comfort that he was reluctant to let him go. Oh, move that chair near me, please. No, that one, under my legs. I feel easier when my legs are higher. Garrison pulled up the chair and, without letting it knock, set it gently down on the ground just at the right place and lifted Ivan Ilyich's legs onto it. It seemed to Ivan Ilyich that he was easier just at the moment when Garrison lifted his legs higher. I'm better when my legs are higher, said Ivan Ilyich. Put that cushion under me. Garrison did so. Again he lifted his legs to put the cushion under them. Again it seemed to Ivan Ilyich that he was easier at that moment when Garrison held his legs raised. When he laid them down again he felt worse. Garrison, he said to him, are you busy just now? Not at all, sir, said Garrison, who had learned among the town-bred servants how to speak to gentlefolk. What have you left to do? Why, what have I to do? I've done everything. There's only the wood to chop for tomorrow. Then hold my legs up like that. Can you? To be sure, I can. Garrison lifted the legs up, and it seemed to Ivan Ilyich that in that position he did not feel the pain at all. How about the wood? Don't you trouble about that, sir. We shall have time enough. Ivan Ilyich made Garrison sit and hold his legs, and began to talk to him. And, strange to say, he fancied he felt better while Garrison had hold of his legs. From that time forward, Ivan Ilyich would sometimes call Garrison and get him to hold his legs on his shoulders. On his shoulders? And he would, um, and he liked talking with him. Garrison did this easily, readily, simply, and with a good nature that touched Ivan Ilyich. Health, strength, and hardiness in all other people were offensive to Ivan Ilyich, but the strong and hardiness of Garrison, but the strength and hardiness of Garrison did not mortify him, but soothed him. Ivan Ilyich's great misery was due to the deception that, for some reason or other, everyone kept up with him, that he was simply ill and not dying, and that he need only keep quiet and follow the doctor's orders, and then some great change for the better would be the result. He knew that whatever they might do, there would be no result except more agonizing sufferings and death. And he was made miserable by this lie, made miserable at their refusing to acknowledge what they all knew and he knew by their persisting in lying over him about his awful position and enforcing him uh, too to take part in this lie. Lying, lying, this lying carried on over him on the eve of his death and destined to bring that terrible, solemn act of his death down to the level of all their visits, curtains, sturgeons for dinner, dot dot dot, was a horrible agony for Ivan Ilyich. And, strange to say, many times when they had been going through the regular performance over him, he had been within an, a hair's breadth of screaming to them, Cease your lying! You know, and I know, that I'm dying! So do, at least, give over lying! Ooh, right. But he had never had the spirit to do this. The terrible, awful act of his dying was, he saw, by all those about him, brought down to the level of a casual, unpleasant, and to some extent, indecorous incident, somewhat as they would behave with a person who should enter a drawing room smelling unpleasant. 
It was brought down to this level by that very decorum to which he had been enslaved all his life. He saw that no one felt for him, because no one would even grasp his position. Garrison was the only person who recognized this, the position and felt sorry for him. And that was why Ivan Ilyich was only at ease with Garrison. He felt comforted when, when Garrison sometimes supported his legs for whole nights at a stretch and would not go away to bed, saying, Don't you worry yourself, Ivan Ilyich, I, I'll get sleep enough yet. Or when suddenly dropping into the familiar peasant forms of speech, he added, If thou weren't sick but as tis, t'would be strange if I didn't wait on thee. Garrison alone did not lie. Everything showed clearly that he alone understood what it meant, and saw no necessity to disguise it, and simply felt sorry for his sick, wasting master. He even said this once straight out, when Ivan Ilyich was sending him away. We shall all die, so what's a little trouble, he said, meaning by this to express that he did not complain of the trouble just because he was taking this trouble for a dying man, and he hoped that for him, too, some, someone would be willing to take the same trouble when his time came. Apart from this deception, or in consequence of it, what made the greatest misery for Ivan Ilyich was that no one felt for him as he would have liked them to feel for him. At certain moments, after prolonged suffering, Ivan Ilyich, ashamed as he would have been to own it, longed more than anything for someone to feel sorry for him, as for a sick child. He longed to be petted, kissed, and wept over, as children are petted and comforted. He knew that he was an important member of the law courts, that he had a beard turning gray, and that therefore it was impossible. But still he longed for it. And in, this and in his relations with Garrison, there was something approaching to that. And that was why being with Garrison was a comfort to him. Ivan Ilyich longs to weep, longs to be petted and wept over. And then there comes in a colleague, Shebek. And instead of weeping and being petted, Ivan Ilyich puts on his serious, severe, earnest face. And from mere inertia gives his views on the effect of the last decision in the Court of Appeal and obstinately insists upon them. This falsity around him and within him did more than anything to poison Ivan Ilyich's last days.